Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. I'm Anusha Martinez. My pronouns are she, her, and I am speaking. Hi, Anusha. Hi. To our loyal listeners, this is the second interview we have done with uh, one of our, with a Meta cousin. Right. So not just one of our cousins, but the Metha cousin. You may remember that our first interview was with Sheetal Kircher, who is a oncologist. And we talked to her about oncology and physician burnout and compassion fatigue quite some time ago, almost over a year ago, at least. And then last year for my birth, it was last year. Wow. Last year for my birthday set of surprises, we also talked to our aunt who is in Gujarati our mommy our mom's brother's wife and anuja is the middle daughter of that family so sheetal's older cousin older sister sorry sheetal's older sister our middle cousin and there's one more sister that we will probably end up talking to at some point who is now currently out in colorado so welcome we uh tap our family members as much as possible <laughs> Um, so Anuja, you are, you know, you are a survivor of a pretty serious health condition, um, and, and something that really, the kind of thing that takes people out, like they just don't even have a chance to respond, right? It happens. And then you have like one and a half minutes and it's over. Correct. Will you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and sort of, um, the process of having gotten this diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So it was, it was long and complicated. That's kind of the easiest way to say it. So when I was 29, I'm 45 now almost, I was having some weird flashes of lights in my eyes. And I, after visiting for years and years and years, and doctors telling me that it was just my poor vision, which I also have, I went to my primary care physician at the time who had been seeing for a few years by that point already. He said, you know what, we're just going to go for an MRI or a CAT scan and just, just see. You have no family history of any brain issues, nothing. Let's just go because it's going to come out nothing, but you know, it'll make me feel better just to know that it's nothing. I went for the CT scan and they found a large brain aneurysm. Um, it's actually called a fusiform aneurysm, which means it's wrapped all the way around the whole artery instead of being just a bubble, as most people know it. Um, and I was brought down to the ER that evening. I am one of the lucky ones in that that is not how most people find their aneurysms. They find them when you have a stroke and you end up in the emergency room. 
I was blessed with a primary care physician who thought ahead that maybe this is something else. Maybe it's maybe something we're just not seeing, which is exactly what it was. Wow. That's, I mean, talk about fortuitous and, and particularly, you know, as, as you were just talking a little bit about how you'd gone to see, you know, you'd gone to your doctors and this and that, and they're like, ah, oh, your vision just sucks. Right. Um, and so how, and what we're hearing now, especially in the news is how, or just in the general chatter is how often women's pain and their experience are, is dismissed by, by physicians, particularly specialists. Right. And it's something like, Oh, it's, it's your vision. Oh, you need to lose weight. Oh, it's, you're making it up. You're overreacting, blah, 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 which it always cracks me up when I think about that because women start with pain around the time they're 10 monthly pay, monthly discomfort all the way through to let's say 50, you got 40 years. If there's one person who's not going to exaggerate what is going on, it's a woman because they actually know what pain is on a regular basis and what's regular and, you know, sort of what's in the, in the scope of normal and what's outside the scope of what, you know, they normally experience and guys who get, get a cold and need to lay on the couch and go, Oh, I'm really sick. Like they're more believable. What is that about? It's exactly <laughs> it. every single one of those responses from different physicians. I needed to lose weight and I wasn't even overweight. FYI, they told me it was something like ocular migraines. Um, they said, oh, maybe you're getting these headaches because, you know, you need to lose a little weight. I've had hypertension literally my whole life since I was about 18. Oh, maybe that's it. But the problem is, is I also had all the testing in the world that disproved any of those things, that it wasn't any of those things. I was losing my vision while I was driving. Wow. And no one took it seriously except this one female Asian physician. Wow. Who looked at me and said, this doesn't sound right. Something's off. Something doesn't sound right. And she's like, I don't think it's your brain, but I'm going to check it out anyways. And she saved my life. Yeah. Did you, you did have a history of migraines? Uh, my whole family does. I've had headaches and stuff like that since I was a kid. So I didn't think anything of it. It was the flashing lights in my eyes when I started to panic. And I, I'll never forget it. I think it was the year before we were in India shopping for Sheetal's wedding. And it happened. I had one of those flashing and Sheetal started doing one of those neuro checks. And she even, I saw the panic on her face. She looked on her face. It was, it's not right. There's, this is not right. Something's off. But it still took so many other doctors to figure out how to fix it or how to find it. How to find it. How to find it, yeah. Because yeah, the fix was 24 hours. Like, I'm not saying it was easy, but the how to fix once you find it was like, okay, this is what we have to do. There's a plan in place. Uh, yeah, somewhat. I, I mean, I again, I was lucky that I, I found mine before it ruptured. And I was in a hospital with a neurosurgeon who believed in giving patients choices. And so he gave me two choices. I could have the open craniotomy, all of that, or something that was relatively more experimental at the time doing endovascular surgery where I didn't have to have a craniotomy. And he gave us a week to think about it, both me and my parents, my parents were there at the time. And they said, what do you want? What, what feels right to you? And gave us all the options and all the risks. And I got to choose. Wow. 
So tell us a little bit, tell us, all of us, a little bit about what what the balance of these two choices are, right? So what would the craniotomy entail? What would this other surgery entail, this other option entail? And sort of what, how did you weigh your choices? <laughs> Not lightly. Um, so craniotomy, that is the well-known procedure. That's what's been done for decades. It's literally busting open your skull and putting a metal clip around the aneurysm um, and blocking off su blood, blood supply so that it wouldn't burst, it wouldn't give you a stroke. That is the tried and true. That's what everybody done. That's what's known. And that's the most tested procedure um, to know that this is what works. Endovascular surgery had been done at that point, but not as often. It's where they go in through your femoral artery, basically near your groin, thread all the way up into your brain and implant titanium coils and a stent into the artery to block off the blood supply, not with clips, but like by filling them in with these titanium coils. Hmm. You say, I just want to clarify. Did you say they go into the femoral artery in your groin? In your groin. Right on my bikini line, I had two stitches. I now, you know, 16 years later, don't have any scars in my body and can tell people I had brain surgery. We looked at it both ways, you know, and my parents being much more practical than I am, I'm much more impulsive. They're very practical. We had kind of our two visions of this together, which I think was helpful. And we just talked about it. You know, we trusted the physician that we were speaking with. You know, we had <laughs> Sheetal and like seven other physician friends that had shown up in the ER that evening to also weigh in on what this guy was telling us. And we just decided, you know, with my fairly good health at that time, my age, no other um, health conditions or anything that we were going to take our chances and do the endovascular surgery, you know, wow. and it turned out to be the perfect decision for me because I've had no detectable disabilities. Unless you know me very intimately, you wouldn't notice them. Um, I've had no complications, 16 years of clear MRIs. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good. So if, is, is this more experimental vascular surgery was that sort of like a let's give that a shot and then we'll sort of how would you know if it worked I guess that's what I'm thinking which is or was there the option to go back and be like mm, we don't like how this is looking let's do the other thing that's that was always an option I think once they got in there and actually started doing the vascular and the vascular and they realized like we're not able to fill it in it doesn't look right or god forbid if I had a bleed in the middle of the surgery we knew the craniotomy in the middle of the procedure was a possibility and I wouldn't know that until after I woke up. Right. No, I know what that, I know that experience of like, all right, we're going to try this thing. Yeah. But then you might end up with something totally different at the end of it. Yeah. 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 Well, that, I mean, that's good. Right. Cause they weren't, they weren't just like, well, let's see, well, we'll do this thing. And then good luck with that. Right. Uh, that there was always a possibility that, that they were, that the team was prepared to move to this other approach that was tried and true and certainly would have you know, address the problem, but would have been, sounds like a far more invasive, intense approach. And guaranteed disabilities. Because I mean, the reality is anytime someone's screwing around in your brain, you're going to have stuff. Stuff's going to be different when you wake up. But when you are, you know, cracking someone's skull open like that, there's going to be other recovery that looks different than what I had. You know, we knew, if I remember correctly, my memory fades a little bit around this time. So I don't have a whole, all my memories around that time. But if I remember correctly, I think he was the one guy in the U.S. that was sort of the expert of this kind of surgery. 
And so that, because we did our research on him and, and knew what we're getting into, we trusted him with it. Wow. Well, that's, that's incredibly fortuitous. What was your recovery like? One day in the ICU, uh, maybe another day in the regular hospital, and then 11 days after I was surgery, I was back at work. Wow. Only like basically two full days in, in, in patient care. Wow. That's, and then did you just get to go home and like, like take it easy, but kind of just be yourself? Sort of. I went back to my parents' house, obviously, because they were not going to let me just be by myself. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you lived like you lived alone at that time. I lived alone at the time. Yes. Yes. Our, our drive from my parents. And so obviously I was not going to be stay at home by myself. They took home and kind of cared for me back to health. <clears throat> but it was 11 days. I remember that 11 days I was back at work with um, modifications. My memory was spotty at best for a good six months after the surgery i had to do oh gosh so much to try and remember just the smallest things i was the post-it queen i had to write down everything how was your memory before the surgery perfect i could remember everything i remembered things all the way down to i was three years old i mean uh now it's uh better i am for six months after my surgery i think it was maybe it was about three months post-op i started acupuncture and acupuncture brought my my short-term memory back. Um, now I still have glitches in my memory every now and then, especially when I have a headache, but it's not how bad it used to be. It's much better, yeah. Was your, was your long-term memory affected at all? So you know, did you have any trouble remembering stuff that happened before, or um, did you have a hard time moving stuff from short-term to long-term memory even after your surgery? Or was it really like, well, I don't, couldn't have done that because I actually don't remember what just happened or like, I thought I was supposed to do this thing in the morning and now I don't remember it. It's immediate, my, almost my immediate short-term memory. I still have a problem with this. Someone, if I'm on the phone with someone, they give me a phone number to write down. There's some weird glitch and it's mostly with numbers. When I hear it, when I put it down on a piece of paper, I lose it and it's gone. And I have to someone repeat things multiple times. And even then I just can't seem to process it. So that was really bad where someone would tell me something and I went to go write it down and it was gone. I remember that we did physical therapy or it was like occupational therapy after the surgery and my parents were there and they were telling us to press numbers on what looked like, you know, a 1970s phone to write down, to, to punch the numbers. And I was doing it and in my head, I was doing it perfectly. And I looked at my dad and he was shaking his head like, oh God, no, I wasn't doing it. And I didn't know. You're like, I'm so good at this. Like, I haven't had a phone <laughs> like this in so long. And I'm so good at this. And my dad lost the color in his face. Like, oh my gosh, she is not doing it. It doesn't look right. Um, and that was six months of that. And I woke up one day after those six months, I woke up one day and it was back. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is we talked uh, a lot uh, a while ago with Kate, who it, it went through like uh, religious indoctrination, but also like depression, anxiety, and she had ECT done and it was done really bad. And she had brain damage. And they said like X amount of months later, it takes X amount of time for your brain to reset. And I want to say it was like six months, something like that. And like, it was like that six month mark at like, things started clicking in again and it sounds like your brain needed like a reset after someone went in there and messed with it in a good way 
Mm -hmm. That's absolutely it. I do, I do credit acupuncture a little bit. I felt like once I started doing acupuncture, things just got clearer within the first session, but it was after the first, I don't know, it was six, 10 sessions that I had. I mean, I saw a marked difference in my, in my memory. That's awesome. That's really, really great. I can't imagine how frustrating that would have been for you though, to be like, I swear to God, I went to kindergarten. Like I know my numbers. What the hell? Especially at 29, when you have the brain of a hundred year old with dementia, that's kind of how I felt. And that's actually though the whole recovery has been is trying to wrap your wrap your brain around where you look and your actual biological age and how you feel and how they don't match. Yeah, I think your explanation of like feeling like an older person with dementia, because when people have dementia, they they're like, I got this. Yep. And they clearly don't. So like it's not so much your memory, but the processing of it I can imagine that that would make you feel like you're going crazy where you're like no 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 I'm pressing the right numbers and everyone around you is saying you're not yes that's exactly it exactly I it's hard for me to even say in words um I guess what I've lost and what I've kept because I don't actually know I have to wait for someone to tell me I'm doing something wrong for me to realize like oh I still have that thing wrong you know, every now and then my husband will tell me um, that I just, I'm off. Like I'm maybe stuttering a little more than I used to, or I'm just a little more foggy than I normally am. And that's when I realize, like, okay, I need to take a second. Cause I don't always realize it. I don't always see it. Do you, have you noticed, so around this stuff, right? You're stuttering or you're a little foggier. Is that about processing speed or is that about being tired? you know so where do you where do you notice that more or is it like you're trying to go too fast or is that you're tired you're trying to do too much so where do those issues tend to come up the most or all of those things all of those things I mean when I'm tired or if I've been doing too much that's like the the biggest thing and I think anybody in my life can tell me like I just do too much sometimes and I don't I don't take care of myself as the priority as often as I should but it's definitely when I'm tired or if I have a, if I have a headache, I, I, things just get fuzzy and, um, the stuttering comes out a lot when I have migraines, when I have headaches, uh, which is kind of the one thing that I've been left with is headaches. The flashing lights are gone. Everything else is gone, but the headaches have, have stayed with a vengeance. So, <laughs> uh, that's when I'll notice those quote unquote disabilities kind of pop up. That's too bad because you think they were in there. They could have taken up, could have. Take care of these migraines too. I know. I I have to remind myself that if this is all I'm left with, as opposed to the alternative, how I could have been, I'll take the headaches. It's yeah. But we did an episode where we talked, you know, I talked about what it was like post surgery, post cancer diagnosis. And similar to you, you know, being in the situation where it's like, my cancer was, it's invisible as I'm walking down the street. I didn't lose my hair. I didn't get thin, you know, I didn't, whatever, all the stuff that people think about cancer survivors as I didn't have to do radiation or chemo, which is a, a thank God, but also then it's so invisible. Yeah. I am actually still sick and it comes with some side effects. And because you didn't see that I was sick, you don't see, you don't, there's no leeway for the struggles I have after that. So what, 
what was that like for you? Like I was only able to deal with it a lot. Well, not only, but mostly through therapy. What was that experience like for you being like, yeah, yeah. I know that you can't see that I really had this major illness and still have it to some extent, right? I'm still dealing with a lot of it every day. Does it, if I looked at you or you're walking around or even just sort of generally operating in the world, one wouldn't see that stuff. So what was, what was that like? Have you, or how much have you made peace with that? And how did you make peace with that? Oh my gosh, that's such a big question. (laughs) Yeah, I, and I do, I still, I deal with it on a daily basis. I don't think about it on a daily basis. That's maybe the difference between early in this process to where I am now. You know what, it it was because I was, what I think is so young to have something like that happen. Nobody should face their mortality at 29. Like it's, it felt bizarre and unnatural. It did because it was invisible and nobody could see it. And largely I couldn't even see it. I could be in denial about all of it and everything that I had gone through very easily. And I did. I was in denial for a very long time. I went right back to partying the way I used to in my 20s and drinking when I shouldn't have been drinking and all of those things that I used to use as coping mechanisms because I didn't feel well even before this. Mm-hmm. So I used that. I used denial. Denial was a wonderful coping mechanism for a little while. Obviously, very, very soon after that, I realized like, okay, I'm not actually dealing with anything. Um, this is not healthy and it's not working. So... Finding a community is what saved my life. You know, I thought about therapy, being a therapist myself, you know, we're probably like the worst people to actually go into therapy because we think that we can do it ourselves. I did talk to a few therapists here and there. It it wasn't what I needed. I think what I needed was the community. I needed to not just hear my family and friends saying, we get it. We understand when I knew you don't, you don't understand. You don't get it. Just because you have chronic pain does not mean you have any idea of what I deal with on a daily basis. Um, when I found my community of other brain injuries and survivors, especially the young ones, mm-hmm. the ones who were my age and were still dealing with what I had to go through, I felt peace with it because I didn't feel alone anymore. You know, it's a, it's a really lonely thing to be suffering in your own head and not like physically. Nobody can... Um, I guess, almost empathize with what you're going through because they can't see it. You're right. I look fine. And immediately after my surgery, I looked fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is something that you and I definitely have in common, which is I looked fine. I looked fine before my surgery. I looked fine after my surgery. And I make the, I think I make this joke before, uh, especially on that episode. Like I cursed every single one of those burpees I had done before during my workouts. But the fact that, you know, I was out of the hospital, I went in on a Tuesday, left on a Saturday. And when I was just discharged, I packed my own bag, took a shower, put on my clothes and tied my own shoes. I didn't need any Tylenol after the second day. Like, I'm like, okay, this is on one hand, I'm like, this is awesome. And on the other hand, I'm like, people so quickly forget because you look, you look fine. And then you're like, everyone just pick up with their own life. The other thing that really struck me about what you said is like, I just went back to my old ways of doing things. And I remember, and I told Kosha this too. I'm like, I needed to be fine, right? I probably, after my surgery, I should have taken much longer to recover. I should have gone much slower. I I should have backed off on a lot of things, 
but I needed to be myself. Yeah. Right. I think, and it's not necessarily denial, denial in the way that's like, it didn't happen, but more like that is, like you said, facing your own mortality at such a young age. No, no, I need, yeah, yeah, that's over. I need to be myself. I need to feel normal because that is way too much for me to think about now. Like it's over. Ooh, it's over. Yep. And then, but the actual processing and thinking about like, well, wow, how narrow was the passageway that I just passed through? That narrow passageway, I think, did you grapple with that? And how hard was it to grapple with the fact that like, it was a chance encounter almost that it, that means I'm still here. Right. If you had been on that trajectory, you would have died because of this aneurysm. I mean, that's, the, I mean, I'm so grateful to my neurosurgeon that he didn't actually tell me how grave it was until afterwards. Thank God. Good call. All right. He's, you know, he's wonderful. And I, I, I owe my life to him. He, um, when we came in for my post-op uh, appointment, which was, you know, a couple of days later, whatever, after I had gone home, um, he actually showed us pictures of the aneurysm. He's like, so it wasn't the little bubble. Like everybody thinks, you know, they see the artery and they see the little bubble on top. That's an aneurysm. He's like, uh, yours was a fusiform aneurysm and it was big. It was, it had wrapped around the entire artery and it was way more complicated than we thought it was going to be. I've never heard of an aneurysm getting all the way around. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's, it changes because you can't clip that. You have to use those coils. It's a different kind of surgery that you have to have. Um, I now being an ER social worker and seeing people coming in, stroking out because they had an aneurysm, I know that one slight bump to your head and I could have died. So that took me a second. It took me a second. Once he had told me that, and actually, you know, me being the information junkie that I am went online and started looking at all of this stuff and realizing what I actually had gone through. That took me a second um, of going between, again, that denial or for, pretending like this wasn't that big of a deal um, to severe anger, depression, like another thing that I have to go through in my life. Are you kidding me? Um, to finally finding my acceptance in this and realizing like, okay, you get second chance. How many people don't get to get that? Okay. I get to, there's a reason for that. You know, I kind of shifted who I am a little bit. I'm a lot less selfish, a lot more grateful. Things that bother most 45 year olds or whatever don't really bother me because I already cheated death once. I got to do that. I'll consider it almost a privilege. It took me a while to get to that point. I will say that. Um, I didn't think of it as a privilege anytime soon after the aneurysm. I was mostly angry. Very, very angry. But now, I don't know. Now I look at it as, you know, I get to be vocal about taking care of yourself and noticing when things feel off, advocating with medical professionals that aren't listening, and being able to be at a giant teaching hospital right now where I get to show the newbies, the new doctors that are coming into the ER, like, hey, by the way, I've got this story to tell you. Um, use it for your patients. Use it for the other people that come in that you think that there's nothing wrong and you might be you might be wrong about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so cool. And I I mean, I absolutely I I'm with you hundred percent on the flipping back and forth between rage and gratitude. Yes. On one hand, you're like, what the fuck, man? This, this isn't fair. This, and I've said this, you know, I've said this before that this wasn't in my plans. 
as if someone actually plans. Okay, you know what? I got time here <laughs> at 32 to deal with, to have an aneurysm. So let, let's do pencil it in in three years, right? No one ever says that, right? And no one ever actually plans to be that ill. Um, so on one hand, you're like, fuck, man. It's not, my, it's not fair. On the other hand, you're like, I'm so lucky to be here, right? Mm -hmm. It could have gone so much worse. Right. Um, and like you said, one bump to the head and it could have been a, a burst aneurysm, not just a bubbling aneurysm. And good, if you were like out hiking somewhere, that would have been the end of it, right? I mean, yes. There were so many places in which a situation like that, there's, you just can't get the help fast enough. See, that would never happen to me because I don't hike, but <laughs> I get your point. What if you're on an airplane? There you go. Okay. For you. So do they know, like, do they have a sense at all of how long you were living with that before? Because the flashing lights, like, that seems like a severe symptom. I had that for a decade. I mean, it was a long time. But again, I had very, very poor vision. So, I mean, the only reason I say that that was the aneurysm is because it hasn't happened again. Since I had the surgery, that went away. I haven't had those. I've had something similar, which turns out I actually do have ocular migraines. It's something totally different what they originally were oh, saying. Oh, okay, okay. It is something that looks a little bit different. It's not as intense. It doesn't block my vision. I don't go into that tunnel vision. It's different. But I totally forgot where I was going with all of this. But yeah, like it. No, that you, how long do they think you were living with at this? And you're, because it doesn't go from like that to fusiform, right? Like normal to fusiform overnight. There's no way to know because I don't have any medical conditions. I didn't have any problems with anything. And we don't really have a family history of them. I didn't have any risk factors, nothing. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, they say, what is it, one in, nine people are walking around with an aneurysm right now and wouldn't know it i could have been born with it there's no way to, that's like the big giant question is to how did this happen because i think this popped up on me when i became pregnant with sahana as now i started thinking what if it was genetic what if other people in my family died and just didn't know that's what it was now i'm gonna have a daughter and oh my god what if i pass this along to her i remember being six months pregnant and having a full-on meltdown because i was terrified that my little girl was gonna get this thing that i got that i was still cursing at every now and then but there's no way to know you know it easily could have been just a genetic or a, a biological oops that i was born with and you know i was lucky to find it early and i i i identify with your being a information junkie and that is giving me anxiety just for me like I, there's no way to know oh my god that's like so frustrating there's no way to know there's gotta be <laughs> oh trust me so getting an mri the first time she tells me she has a headache it's happening <laughs> <laughs> it could be just that she like fell because she's five and bonked her head you're like that's it i've yeah. already thought about that. she's bumped her head plenty of times i'm like <gasps> what do i do do i have to go get that checked out and you know I'm very, very lucky to have a very level-headed husband that brings me down when I need him to. <laughs> it is scary because it's because because there's no way to test for it. No, unless I mean, and and not to freak you out anymore, but you go and do an MRI. Well, maybe it's not there. Maybe it shows up when she's ten. Like the thing is, there's you didn't know when you when when this happened. Were you born with it? Did it show up from 20? Was this a 25 to 29 thing? Who knows, right? 
So then there's no way to monitor for it either. None. And honestly, I think everybody got MRI, my family got MRIs after I had my surgery just to check, but it's not reasonable to think that for no reason, just go ahead and get a brain MRI. Like, you know, that's not a reasonable thing. Now I being who I am and having access to medical care, which is a privilege. Um, I may suggest as Sahani gets older, like, let's just check out what's happening in there. You know, just cause I have this history for baseline. I might. Do we know either of you two being information junkies? Um, but I'm going to ask you a new justice. This is your story. Is there any information, evidence, research, whatever that aneurysms, it, there is a genetic component to aneurysms. There is. Okay. I think my mom mentioned a distant relative that maybe had one, but she was elderly. But again, a, a lot of these memories around all of that are blurry. But I, I remember her saying something about that, but we don't have a strong family history. I have seen people come into the ER, ended up having an aneurysm. They said, oh yeah, my mom had one. My sister had one. My aunt had one. Wow. Okay. And I think her point earlier was like, you know, we come from, we're all first generation Americans. We come from immigrants and let's say, so my dad, our dad, our dad had quadruple bypass like 15 years ago. Right. And he's like, well, it's so crazy because I have no family history of heart disease. And I was like, and I was, he was like being annoying about something about not wanting the surgery. And so he was complaining about it. He's like, well, I don't have any family history. I don't know where this came from. And I was like, well, thank you, because now I have family history, right? Like the whole idea was a family history starts somewhere. Otherwise, we would all, if it was just evolutionary, like you just keep going back, then we all would have the same issues because we all are, you know, descendants of the same ancestors. <laughs> and then hey. uh, the other thing is, we don't know. Like our grandfather died of sepsis because of a surgery at 64. What if he had massive like heart disease and would have died of a heart attack the next year? Or they just had, you know, people die in their sleep and they didn't do autopsies yeah. Autopsies for every single person in India, but not even now here. So it's like, you don't know if you actually had family history. It starts with you. Yeah. Exactly. And then in our family, it does, it starts with me. Yeah. Technically I'm starting that, that part of the story where, you know, if you start having weird headaches and things like that, just go check it out because Anuja has thing. And wouldn't we love for it just to be a one-off, right? Where it's like, this is a fluke. It's not related to anything. It just, sometimes things don't get built properly and you had a weak spot. And honestly, most of most of the time I go there. Most of the time I think this was a fluke. It's just, uh, you know, biological freaking nature. It just happened. People are born with weak spots in their brain all the time. No biggie, nothing to worry about. Most of the time, that's where I, I find my peace. Well, I will say, Anuja, you've always loved being a little extra. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about. <laughs> if, if, our, if our listeners could just have seen your face, <laughs> it was very good well it's like yeah most of the time but there are moments you're in your sort of tired or more exhausted more weaker more anxious moments you go well, what if it isn't right I mean what if there's something else going on you know it's almost almost always driven by a desire to protect your kid from 
everything, anything, whatever it is, right? Well, well, what if something happens and I can't help her, right? It, that is the thing, right? Not like, oh, maybe it's genetic. Okay, but that doesn't mean she has it, obviously. But that, but it's really the like, what if I can't help her? Right. No, no, it's, it's true. I mean, that was kind of the only saving grace when I had the surgery is it was just me. I didn't have a family at the time. I was not married. I did not have children. It was just me. And so I could be selfish and just think about myself. That's a little bit the difference between you and I, you still had to think about your family. You know, I didn't, I thought about my parents and how devastated they would be. And yeah, Moha had just had her own surgery at that time and was recovering. So like, I thought about that stuff, but for the most part, I was just, you know, selfish 20 year old, whatever, 29 year old and was thinking about myself. Now it's a little bit different thinking about Sahana, but I also think that if all of the three of us, you know, me and my sisters, if anybody would have had this happen to, I'm glad it happened to me. I'm, and everybody knows this, I am positive to a fault. I always see the good things of the of things. I'm, you know, I'm able to like, I don't know, find find the benefit out of any horrible thing that could happen. So if this is just a fluke and if it's going to happen to somebody, okay, so I'll take it. It's okay. I'm not trying to be like a martyr by any means, but you know, I can, I can look at it and be rational about it and not, uh, and most of the time not be, I guess, too emotionally devastated by what I was left with. Yeah. Most days, most days I'm still. <laughs> well, yes, most days. Right. I think, you know, for me, I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm live and I am very healthily alive. For, from a cancer that kills people, usually kills people in five years. And I probably had it for seven. So I don't want, but let's change gears a little bit. Cause we could, we could sort of dive, you and I could just have conversations about like, oh, it was like this, it was like that. Um, but you had mentioned earlier that you um, have been using this with new physicians and as part of, you're using your story to help, you know, physicians, nurses, who, and maybe less so nurses, because nurses tend to be the ones who are like, what's actually going on? They listen. They tend to be the ones who listen more. Um, but with physicians doing physician training, how have you been able to use your story? And like, what, how, how is that sort of translated to like doctors doing their jobs better? Well, so because you were a social worker before, like it, this didn't change your career trajectory, right? No, no, it didn't. It didn't change the trajectory of my career. But when I happened to land this job in an ER at a big teaching hospital, I was like, huh, here's an opportunity. <laughs> Let me go ahead and use this. Um, honestly, I, I, every physician here, so when they're in like third year medical students here or brand new residents, they're required to do kind of like a pseudo rotation with the social workers. That's the one thing, that's what I love about this place is they actually really value the social workers here and our opinion and what our, what our collaboration actually means within a disciplinary team. So when I they come to me and I talk to them, I actually share this story and let them know, you know, a seemingly healthy 29-year-old coming in with a complaint over and over and over again, think outside the box, look past her gender, her age, her sexuality, her ethnicity, like look past all of those things and start thinking about just human being. What else could be, could this be in just a human being? And I get these, you know, very young and um, I guess somewhat jaded 
uh, residents, by the time they come in and they're a resident, they, they've seen a lot um, and they're busy and they're tired and they're overworked and all of those things. And I'm asking them to take a moment and take some time with your patients. Talk to them, find out their history. I said, you don't need to do a psychosocial with them. Like that's what the social workers are for, but maybe get to know them just a little bit. Have the conversation about what's been happening even maybe slightly beyond what the presenting complaint is that I brought you in. You know, what is your social life like? What kind of support system do you have? Is there something else that is troubling you or something else that you think is mm, just a little off and doesn't feel right to you? You know, and, and mostly I, I say this for like, especially for ER, if somebody comes in with a headache and they've been coming in every single week for three months with a headache, don't give them a Tylenol and send them on their way you know well how much of it to anuja because of where you are right like you're on the south side of chicago do some of these jaded physicians assume that it's drug seeking or something like that like some of these other socio-emotional or socio-economic i should say issues that may be going on that you would if you lived on the north side of Chicago, which is a little more affluent, they might not assume certain things about the patient. Yes, absolutely. So it's a lot of drug seeking we see every now and then, but it's also a lack of access to healthcare. So a lot of doctors will come in like, oh, surely you haven't been seeing your PCP. Surely you haven't been checking your labs. Surely you haven't been taking your meds the way that you're supposed to, or going to dialysis the way that you're supposed to. And surely you don't have any sort of support system around you that's helping you. When truthfully, that is just not the story of everybody that lives over here. And if it is, that also says something about health equity, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's a totally different story. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is there is an inequity here. There, there is very a lot of lack of, of, of access to healthcare around here. But that just means that a lot of my patients just work really hard to make sure that they get what they need. But just because they live on the South Side doesn't mean that they're not taking care of themselves. And if they're coming in, a lot of those patients who wouldn't necessarily go to the doctor, if they're coming in, that means something really is happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and we also, I mean, this is where I guess social work comes in is that we, we talk about the whole person is not just they have access to proper health care. They also have a lack of information and schooling and education and healthy food because there are no good groceries around here. And, you know, it's, it's, it's systemic. It's such a bigger picture as to why somebody comes in that is 25 years old, morbidly obese with hypertension, diabetes, headaches, and is stressed out. Well, I wonder, because they have no access to the basic needs of a human being to keep yourself healthy. And yeah, you're stressed out because you don't have access to anything, you know, and people aren't listening. Arlene Geronimus has done a lot of work on what, uh, basically the impact of racism on health. Her hypothesis is called the weathering hypothesis, which is that all of the things that push certain racial minorities into really stressful situations crappy food, pollution, crummy jobs where you have to work two jobs, right? Economic stress, um, environmental stresses, and just like violence and just the impact of like constant racism on your body. It basically, it it's like constantly being chased by a lion, constantly. The cortisol levels are always heightened, which causes all sorts of other problems. Right, 
And so that is why 25 year olds, you know, black or Latinx 25 year olds that live in an impoverished neighborhood who have to work two jobs come in with hypertension and more of an obesity, right? Cause they're not eating good foods and they never get a chance to fucking relax. And even when you're like kind of in a good space, you're always like on watch because well, maybe someone's going to say something super fucking rude to you, or you're going to have to like manage your emotional levels because you've got some racist customer in your face and you can't be a mad black person. Right. So. Yes, exactly. You're all constantly managing yourself to appease or, you know, make everybody else around you be more comfortable, which is unfair and stupid and shouldn't be that way. Do you have, do you have a story that you can share of like how your experience did change like a doctor like how can you go from start to finish on a patient where your intervention actually like made a difference here I know you have plenty of stories but can you (laughs) can you pull one out one in particular so there was a young bless his heart he he was trying he was trying um we have very recently had an influx of uh, a lot of immigrants that have shown up um you know i've seen the stuff that's happening in south america um of people from colombia and venezuela coming up and and landing in chicago with nothing no information no nothing and so a lot of a lot of people are when they get sick are showing up in our er and he happened to notice and he was getting almost angry that why do quote unquote these people keep coming to our ER when they can be going to Cook County. They could be going to the, the hospitals or clinics in Little Village where everybody speaks Spanish and things like that. And I talked to him and I, I said, you know, just because someone's an immigrant or coming from a different place that you don't understand <laughs> or coming or had like a different life story that you don't understand or haven't taken time to understand doesn't mean they shouldn't have quality, high quality healthcare like what we provide here. And he stopped for a second and I was like, think about what that person may have gone through to even get to the Hyde Park campus. The story alone right there will tell you why their health is so poor, okay? And it was maybe a week later, he came back and he said, I have something I want to share with you. Something called a dot phrase in Epic, which is you know the medical system that we use. He's like, I have this dot phrase that I want to share to everybody. And he brought it up and it was just called, I was called like dot immigrants or something like that. He had compiled resources, like healthcare resources in every pocket of the city of Chicago. This is where you get legal information. This is whatever. He had translated into Spanish and Polish, French, and all these different languages. And he's like, what do you think? Do you think this would help? And I started crying. I was like, when did you have time to do that? And he's like, look, social workers aren't always going to be there. You guys are seeing everybody. We have one social worker writing the entire ER. He's like, but there's like 15 of us. And if I can give him, this person, a nugget of information that might change their life, and prevent them from coming back to see me because they're now getting access to healthcare outside of here. He's like, then I did my job. I just got chills. Yeah. I mean, amazing. that's amazing. It's right. Amazing. <laughs> oh my well, God. even then like, okay, maybe you need to go to the ER again, but you don't need to come all the way across town. Here's another place that you could see that literally is like, you could take a bus to, or someone can drop you off. Instead of it being an all day thing where you're like, well, now I've had to miss a day of work. Exactly. Because I had to go all the way to University of Chicago. That's the only place I know that I can go for sure. Exactly. And it was done in their language and with a a sprinkle of kindness, right? That goes so far for someone that is trying to keep themselves healthy 
in a place that they're not familiar with and nobody speaks their language and doesn't have their culture. Cause there are, I don't think there are a whole lot of Venezuelans and Colombians around here, you know, and, and you feel alone. And it's like, I understand that feeling of being alone and not having a community. I think I had said that earlier. That was the saving grace for me is I found my brain aneurysm community that that's what saved my life aside from my neurosurgeon. That is what kept me from not going to the other side of this recovery, which I've so that's what I wanted to impart to this physician is like, let them help them find a community, help them to find something to stay healthy that doesn't involve you. Well, and I think, you know, what I love about that story is I asked about like a patient success and what you gave me was a systemic success. Like you, you had mentioned, like the problem is systemic and you can, I, I know that you have plenty of stories where you're like, talk to this one doctor. And then they looked at this and then we found out that the patient had this instead of this right but the the success story that you shared here with our listeners was how one person can actually start helping the systemic problem because one of the issues and this happened very recently is anushka my daughter is incredibly empathetic like she feels very deeply about everybody everything every creature and she was in bed the other night and to, we were talking about how our cats were um, our rescues. And she literally like thought about it for a few minutes. And then I hear sniffling, like dark, like I'm trying to put her to bed. And I was like, sweetie, are you crying? And she's like, a little. And I was like, what is going on? And she was just, quote, thinking about all the stray cats and dogs that won't live a happy life. Oh, my gosh, her heart. And so I had to talk to her about like, well, if you think about the big problem, you're going to feel like you can't do anything. But what you have to do is like take little steps. Maybe we donate to the Humane Society. We always adopt our cats. Like we do save the strays. So I do think like I get where when you see a systemic problem, you're just like, what can I do? I'm one person. Right. But what you have to do is like, you know, start kind of like, was it like whittling away? And then you start seeing change. You really do. Well, I mean, it's the, it's a quote that I've, I've held close to my, ever since my grad school, it's by Margaret Mead, you know, who is a social worker and never doubt, is it never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Well, and she's from Chicago. Yep. Yes, she is. Right. So her work started here, which is you know, even more apt. I think <laughs> the story that you told, it, I mean, it also for me, it, it, that is, that is the value of one voice truly, which is you just check someone and said, take a minute and think about what you're saying, right? Take a minute and, and, and look beyond the surface. Yes. You've got this person. They've been here every day, every week for three months with a headache. What has happened? Why are they still, at this point, you have to ask yourself, why are they still showing up, right? And you should have a chart on them if they're coming every week. You should have some records on them. Are, is, have they been given Tylenol every week and sent home? Maybe we need to do a little bit more looking. Right. Or maybe as an ER, you're not going to be able to do that treatment for them. Maybe what we need to do is help them find somewhere where they can get the follow treatment they need. Right. And so just being like, here's your, here's your medicine, go home. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't even expect the physicians to necessarily have the capacity or time to deal with that. But something as simple as let me page the social worker. Let me call psych. Let me call the advocate. Let me call whoever you have in the hospital to figure this out. Because obviously something is not right. And I don't have the time or capacity to deal with it, which is fine. You're a physician. You don't necessarily need to or have to. But there are other people that can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the ER in particular, which is like those physicians are not uh, set up to be let's engage deeply. Right. There are the people who are like, you okay? can we stabilize you? Do you feel like your immediate problems been taken care of? Okay. I got someone else to deal with. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Fine. That's fine. It needs to be that way where they can go actually save lives because that's something that I cannot do, but I can, I can keep them from coming back. I can get them into the path of recovery, of health, of happiness, of peace, of any of those other things that make life just as important, I think. Right. Well, and the power of telling your story is that, right. It's one thing to be like, some pe- some people, right? Those are not people. Those are that's those are concepts out there. But when you are standing in front of a room of physicians and saying, "This thing happened to me," look at me. I'm a real person. I'm interacting with you, right? It it takes this sort of theoretical right down to the reality. And they're looking at someone who looks healthy and well, and that you never would have known something happened. Why? Because I had a physician that was listening and paid attention. Yeah, absolutely. But, and that's like, it takes the theoretical down to the real um, and makes a huge difference. I suppose like you, physicians should, right? Okay, well, that's all theory. Yes, but I don't have time and X, Y, and Z, Y, um, as opposed to like, oh, that really saved this person's life. Who's on my team, right? It's a team member. Exactly. I mean, I only only thing that's come out of that, and now I do get a lot of looks like I'm the social worker with the brain aneurysm. <laughs> it's sort of like my table now, like, oh, that's an issue. She's the one that had the aneurysm, yeah. So I I have to let that part go and the anger around that, but it's okay. Around the new identity or <laughs> that developing identity. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny because we were talking to our we we're talking to our our resident therapist, and and we were talking about like why you shouldn't be like hey Karen like out in the world you see her at the pool and you're like hey Karen and she's like if somebody asks me like how do you know that person I can't answer like I can't lie I can't answer so we're like yeah ADHD Karen or anxiety Kusha. <laughs> like your brain aneurysm Anuja <laughs> it's all right I'll take that label any day it doesn't bother me it's better than Dearly departed in new show. Uh, exactly. I love it. So how, I mean, we talked a little bit about this before, but how is this, how is both the experience of being, you know, walking through the narrow passageway um, and then also sort of coming out of the other end with yes, some challenges, but also generally being like, Hey, I get to live my life. How, how is that manifesting now? I don't say how does it change you, but like, what are you doing that you feel like this is a direct result? Like this is a direct result of that experience. Uh, I think I used to be a fairly selfish person, truthfully. And I, I think I may have even gone a little too far in the other direction where now I, it's all about other people um, and making sure that everybody else is okay. And, and thinking outside of my own head, right? Uh, no pun intended. 
you know, I, I, that balance is something I'm still working on definitely. But I think I used to really just focus on myself and what I wanted to do and all that stuff. It was almost an immediate change where I started to just think a little global, more global of like the things that are actually happening just outside of my own family, my own city, my own world. And what kind of impact can I create there? Um, and not for my benefit, for other people's benefit. It was almost immediate. That was one of the first things I did. Actually, I think it was within a couple of days of going to my parents' house for recovery is I looked for that community. I looked for how can I help somebody else? And to this day, I have friends of friends of friends that will say, hey, I met this person or I have this random friend who now has a brain aneurysm and they need to talk to somebody about it. I have no hesitation. I automatically give out my information. Yes, have them call me. I'm there for them. I will talk to them. I will walk them through the process. I will tell them my story to just, you know, pay, I guess, pay it forward. I hate to say it that way, but to, to pay it forward, to, to, I guess, teach what I have learned through this, uh, which is the thing that helped me is had other people tell me what they had learned and how did they get through it and what helped them. Yeah. I hope you don't beat yourself up about being selfish too much in your twenties, because that's the absolutely natural thing for a 20, someone in their twenties to do, especially someone who's not married, doesn't have kids, you know, generally family is pretty healthy. Like Mo had that surgery, your, your sister had that surgery and, and, you know, your sister, your other sister was going to get married and all this stuff was happening. Um, but like everyone was generally in reasonably good health, right? you were living your best life. Like that makes at that point up until then you were like, hey, that's great. I'm going to go out and do what I want and wear these cool clothes and meet these cool people. And I have no obligations outside of making sure my shit is taken care of. Right. And then, so it's like, it's not, it's not only that you went from like, everything's perfectly healthy to like, oh my gosh, this thing happened. But like, I think you were also at this, at the sort of precipice of like, coming out of your 20s and being like yeah I'm a little tired of this thing yeah yes yeah and they just kind of came together right like you kind of like evolving in your own life and then it came with this kind of catastrophic or potentially catastrophic event um you know I know like we're all we're very close family sometimes a little too like too much in each other's business <laughs> How has this, has or has this, and if it has, how has this situation when you were 29 changed your relationships with your family? Oh, gosh. Well, it, it repaired some stuff that I had done to my parents in my teen, late teens and, and 20s. Yeah, when I say I was selfish, I mean, I was selfish. I put my parents through some stuff. Um, and I have since apologized for all of those things because I know it was a lot. I was a handful for for many years. Um, I think, you know, when I saw the fear, and I hate to say this, but when I saw the fear in my parents' eyes, and it's a moment I'll never forget. As I'm walking into actually to go get the surgery, they have they take me back and you have to get, you know, your weight and your vitals and all that kind of stuff. The nurse said, okay, go ahead and say your goodbyes. Go ahead and give, I don't know if she said goodbyes, but she said, go ahead and give your hugs or whatever to hug. Your and I looked at my mom and I saw the fear in her eyes. It was that moment. I was like, oh, like I get it now. Now I get as to why they've been on me these past couple of years or why I'm not taking care of my life. Ah, because it's mom, because it's dad. So I think something, something there shifted for me 
where I, a little bit more open with them now. I don't hide as much of my life as I used to. You know, knowing that Moha had gone through a pretty serious surgery, it was in recovery as my stuff was going on through too, is I had a little more empathy, I guess, for the stuff that she goes through too. You know, she still being a physician, like using her expertise. I think we just lean on each other a little bit heavier, which is a, a great thing. And, you know, definitely not taking each other for granted. We know because that moment could end in about two seconds and we don't have any control over those things, you know? So I think we just, I don't know. I think we just started taking care of each other a little bit better. That's really awesome. I mean, I, I'm very thankful that, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm glad that I came out the other side, right? But I'm very thankful that my parents were not there when I went under. It was, it was horrible to see it. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, my mom, she, she would have been a friggin' mess. I, I give my parents credit. They held it together. They didn't appear stressed out. Sheikha was there. Moha, everybody was there. I had the whole family there. Um, and I think because, you know, you have your kid going into brain surgery, you don't know what the other side is going to look like. You know, this isn't a broken arm. This is somebody going to go and screw around in your kid's head, which is, you know, is terrifying. But it, I, I made the mistake of looking directly into my mom's face as I was giving her hugs and she looked terrified. She looked absolutely terrified. That would, yeah. that would make sense. I mean, one would be terrified. She's such a pro. She kept it together. <laughs> so my mom is not a pro in the same way as your mom. And like for our, you know, loyal listeners, they've heard your mom speak and she is, first of all, she's a, she's got a, she's so eloquent, right. And eloquacious. And, um, I don't think that's a word. I don't think <laughs> yes. And eloquent, you put eloquent in location. Right. Which is so what great, I'll say, I, that should be a great word. word. That means you're an eloquent speaker, right? Like you're eloquacious. Uh, anyway, but she is such an elegant speaker that I can see where like she was able to keep it together. My mom is not that like, she's, she's a wonderful person. She's so giving, she's so loving. She, you know, like we've said this a couple times, if you're like, mom, I, what I really need is for you to do three back handsprings right now. She'd be like, okay. Like she'll just, do it. <laughs> she doesn't know how to do back handsprings and they would be bad for her to still do it. <laughs> but one thing she's not super capable of is. You're being generous with this statement. Right. Is like. <laughs> is managing her own emotions and separating them from what someone else is going through or lying about how she's really feeling. She can't, everybody knows how she's feeling at any moment all the time. And she's like, she will make, I don't know if you saw this, but during Shale Shoes um, episode, we talked about the, the comfort in dump out theory of grief or just crisis. And my mom's not good at dumping out. So you end up having to manage her emotions, but it sounds like your parents were really good to have there because they were able to still have that separation. And they didn't want to freak me out because I, you know, we weren't at a place, I think, when our relationship where I was speaking up too much about how I was feeling, we weren't there yet. We're there now, but we weren't there yet. And I, I didn't share at that time how scared I really was. And so since my parents probably didn't know how I was feeling and didn't want to assume anything, they just had, you know, they just, they had their wits about them and they, they didn't show how scared they were up until that one very last moment, you know? And I, I honestly needed them to be that way. Thank God I needed it. Yeah. Oh no. I think, I think everyone needs 
the people around them to be that way at the moment when you're actually the, you know, you're like facing what you're going to have to go through. Right. I mean, uh, when I had surgery, uh, in 2020, it was Kosha and Justin with me and my, my parents were literally on their way back from India. And so they, you know, they landed, they got home, they took a shower, they came to the hospital. Um, but they were not there in the morning when I was being wheeled in and both Kosha and Justin, I mean, I'm sure that both of I could, you could speak for yourself, Kosha, but I'm, I am a hundred percent sure that Justin was freaked out out of his mind. Like so, so, so scared. Right. A, <laughs> and I, I, I joke, but that's not quite true. That's true. It's true, but not totally true, which is like one, obviously I don't, you know, I love this person. I'd, I'd be sad without them, blah, blah, blah. But also freaked out about the fact that like, if I'm gone, he has to manage two children and a house <laughs> on his own. Yes. Well, Jim Gaffigan does that joke about like how he had his wife has uh, had a brain tumor, had to get it removed and they have five kids and he does a joke about like, you know, I'm just looking at my five kids and I'm like, something happens to my wife. These five children are going to have to be put up for adoption. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, honestly, that's something that's come out of this too. That's a conversation I never thought I was going to be having with my spouse. Is now I have to because we never know I might I might have another one. It could happen. So we had that conversation very early in our marriage. Is like if something happens to me, God forbid, A, B, and C needs to happen. And here you have access to all of our passwords. And here is how you access all of our accounts. And this is where Sahana would go and all of those things. Like, you know, it just it just those conversations just became very real. That's all. Have you how because she's five, your daughter is five. What does she know? How do you talk to her about this? So she doesn't know all the details. Of course, she knows mommy has headaches and she, she knows mommy gets Botox for her headaches. Um, so because I've tried all the meds, the acupuncture, the massage, all that good stuff. After 15 years, my doctors are finally like, let's try Botox. And it's a saving grace. It absolutely Botox is helps. amazing for so many things. Overactive bladder. There's so many things. Oh, it's it's it has saved my sanity. I mean, I, I actually can go months without actually being in bed throwing up and it's it's wonderful it's it's a horrific procedure to go through and extremely painful um but i'll i'll do it for to get rid of these headaches but that's what she knows that gets headaches how often do you have to do that every three months 32 injections all over my face my scalp neck and shoulders well it's that's one day that's one day of pain it's one sort of episodic pain yes it's very painful and uncomfortable but then the like then it's fine for three months, right? And I'm good for three months. Yeah, I still get headaches every now and then, but nothing that puts me out. Well, they're not debilitating, right? There's like uh, I got a headache. I need 15 years of every week, every other week, I was in bed and taking days off from from work. It's just no way to live. And now, now I just don't. I don't have those at all anymore. But she knows mommy gets sick sometimes, and mommy gets headaches sometimes, and. I think she's a little too young and she's very similar to Anushka where she's, she feels hard for people. And she's such an empath. Like she really, really cares deeply about everything. I, whenever I have a headache or God forbid, I get a paper cut, she's bringing me water and can I help? And can I do this for you? And she just has a very sweet soul. So I don't want to, I don't want to tell her too much yet, but it, it will be early in her life where she will learn everything. I don't believe in, uh, on uh, protecting her too much from the realities of life. I just tell them in ways that are uh, age appropriate. That's all. 
I think that's right. It's funny. You guys are talking about your lovely uh, daughters who are so empathetic and not that Isha isn't empathetic, but that's like just not her vibe at all. <laughs> her vibe is like not to take care of people. Her vibe is like, oh, I saw you don't feel well. You know, that, that meme where Homer Simpson is like disappearing into the, the bushes yes. <laughs> that that's like, Isha's like, okay, bye. <laughs> Well, I think I think your daughter Anuja Zahana is going to be like. So, is there a reason I'm going in for my third MRI this year? Do we have to talk about something? Or if anything, she's going to sit me down and be like, "Okay, mom, we're going to talk about this. We're okay. I'm okay. I don't have a headache. I've never had a headache. It's going to be okay, mommy. I've never had a headache. You keep talking about this quote headache. I don't know what that is." Stop taking me in forever. Wait till she gets old enough. And what she's going to say is my headache is you. <laughs> you are causing me headaches. So maybe if you cut it out, everything would be fine. <laughs> oh, trust me. I know a couple months ago, we got our very first eye roll. So it's coming. Oh, I feel it. Five? Yeah, it was around that time. Isha, wasn't Isha <laughs> pull this like you're crushing my soul bullshit? Before we head toward the end of the interview, is there something that we didn't ask about that you wanted to share or talk about? I mean, I always like leave people with that is that if you're going through something, whether it's medical or otherwise, find your community, whatever that looks like. You know, it does for me, it was a Facebook group who I'm still friends with, who I was actually best man at somebody's wedding for because he was the very first person that I met and saved my life because he was the first person that I ever met. Find your community, find the people that get it, you know, and don't necessarily dismiss the people that are trying to help you and your, and your family and your friends that don't get it, but um, don't absorb their energies because they don't get it. They don't, and they can't, and you sh and I don't ever want them to, you know, but find the people that do get it and then lean there, lean on those people, vent your frustrations there because they'll be able to give you more constructive things to actually what to do with that emotion. Or if they say like, oh, I understand, that sucks. You actually know they understand and it sucks. And you're like, yeah, you do get it. I know you get it. When I say I have a headache in our, in our brain aneurysm community, when we say I've got a headache, we know what that means. It doesn't mean I have a headache. It means I'm having visual disturbance. I'm pukey. I'm scared I have another aneurysm. I'm being triggered. You know, I need to go talk to my therapist. It means like all these other things where all I have to say to this community is I have a headache. If I say that to, you know, a family member or a friend, I have to explain what that means. Otherwise they're going to have me pop a Tylenol, right? Yeah, which that doesn't help with all the other emotional stuff that's going on underneath, right? And it might not even help with the physical stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's impossible to understand something really understand it if you haven't gone through it and people can be as sympathetic as they can be right but the difference between sympathy and empathy is you actually feel it from the inside um, whereas sympathy people are like they want to feel it and they are they care about you and they're not like dismissing you but they don't get people don't get it and yeah and and I, I always go back to that thing in my head. I don't want you to get it. <laughs> I don't ever want you, God forbid, you'd ever have to really understand what I'm feeling. Uh, I don't want you to. You know, I've got other people in my life that do. And that's that's where I will go for that part. 
you know, I'll take the sympathy from you. That's fine. But the empathy I got to find from somebody that, that truly understands. Well, you uh, jumped ahead and answered the second to last question that we always ask, which is what advice would you give someone in your position? <laughs> if there's anything else you want to throw in there, go right ahead. Yeah. Advocate for your health. Advocate for health. If, if, if the no or if the dismissive whatever from a physician or a nurse or whoever doesn't sit right with you, find somebody else and then find somebody else and find somebody else. You have to be your own advocate because no one else is going to do it for you. Absolutely. I'm just going to add one because you're the first episode for our um, people with, you know, the physical disability challenges invisible and visible. Is there something you would want people to know about like invisible disability when you can't see that something's going on with somebody? Is there something you wish people would know? Yes. If you know someone that has something like that, ask questions and wait for them to explain it to you. Don't make your assumptions about what you think they're feeling, what they're going through or, or, or anything about their disabilities. Ask the question, because I can guarantee anybody with an invisible disability um, or disorder like, won't be offended by those questions. Like, I want you to ask me. I want you to give me the opportunity to explain it from my perspective. And then take that as the truth. Don't take whatever other medical jargon you've heard or what, you know, the general population of aneurysm survivors, this is what they're feeling and that's the truth. No. This person has their individual experience. That's the truth. Anything else that you have heard or learned or think is irrelevant. That's really, that's, that is really great. Cause I think less about disability and more about neurodiversity, but that I'm sure you hear that a lot too, Nija, which is if you know one person with autism, you know, one person with autism. Exactly. hundred percent. Yes. And if you know one person with an aneurysm, or who's dealt with an aneurysm, that's one person's experience. Exactly. You can't necessarily, you know, generalize it to everybody. Not at all. I know hundreds of, of aneurysm survivors and not one of them have the same story. They're all different. Whew. So, you know, we talked a lot about family and how close our families are and how close you are to your family. So can you give us a few examples of your family act, wherever <laughs> that may be? One of them for sure is with the with the aneurysm community is, um, I mean, calling each other zipper heads like that happens sometimes. So people that I've actually had like craniotomies, like they look like zippers. Um, and that is something that, you know, we can say to each other, but nobody else can else use. Um, and honestly, the word headache, that's a big, big one. Because as I said, we say that one word and it means a paragraph. It doesn't mean the word. And we're the ones that we use it within our, our community of just the idea of a headache. In my family, um, and I will speak to my small little family that we have just in our house, and this is partially the Mexican side, because my husband is, is from Mexico, uh, it's part of this is that nobody is ever, we don't ever use names with each other. Everything has a nickname. Everything. So Chewy's name, my bulldog, is not actually Chewy. His name is Jesus. He was born on Christmas. So you call him Jesus. That is sacrilegious. <laughs> you don't actually call people Jesus because that's the name of, you know, their God. So we call him Chewy, but then we don't actually call him Chewy because that's his formal name, quote unquote. And so we call him Papa. <laughs> his formal nickname. It's just, it's a nickname of a nickname, but then we call him Papash. Papash means nothing. Papash is like the most, it's a very like affectionate thing that we call our dogs. 
Okay, so 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 his name is actually Jesus. Jesus. But you don't call him that, so you call him Chewy. But you don't call him Chewy, you call him Papash. Okay, that's amazing. And everybody has nicknames. So, like, we don't call my husband Salome. We call him Salito for the most part. And his whole family calls him that. We don't call Sahana. I don't ever call her name Sahana. I call her Tinky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, we all have our little nicknames. But that's <laughs> nicknames are big in the Latino community and in the Indian community. Yeah. Yes. So, like, like Sahana never had a chance to be called Sahana. No, yeah. We don't. Yeah. We call her Mamita. We call her Chiquis because they live for a Chiquita. We call her Chiquis. We call her Tinky. We call her everything else except Sahana. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Everyone calls our dad Ninupai. No one ever called him Nishendu. Right. And our and uh, our dad's older sister, her name is Nilanjana. But uh, she was always called Baku, which is a flower. I was in my 30s. <laughs> when I found out that her name was not Bakul and it's actually Nilanjana. I have an aunt like that. Yeah. I didn't know that what her, her name was Dejo, but I heard we call her Batu and that, that's what everyone's always called her. I didn't know that that wasn't her actual name for a long time. And then that's why why your grandmother's name is Bumashi. I don't even know what Bumashi's real name is. I don't know her name. <laughs> what was her name? <laughs> it wasn't Boo. No, no. Vinodini. <laughs> yeah, see? Oh. Yeah. I, but see, what's, that's what's funny. I had to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to think about it. Like, what was it? I call her Boo. Like, I didn't call her anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, everybody I know, all of my husband's tias, his sister, everybody has a nickname. And we don't use anybody's real name. That's, I, I love the dog. The dog example <laughs> is amazing. That's my papash. And we call them Dukes. We don't call them dogs. We call them Dukes. D-O-O-G. Dukes. Sure. Dukes. And we have like we have cats and we call them cat thizzles. Like we're <laughs> like we're uh we're Snoop. Like gangsters? Yeah, like we're Snoop Dogg and we're like I love you, but you're not Snoop. <laughs> no, I'm far from Snoop, actually. Yeah, you know, it's been awesome to have you. Thank you so much for for being on and sharing your story. I appreciate you asking, truthfully. Anytime I get the opportunity to just speak up about this stuff, I I take it. We love you so much. I love, love you too. We need to come see your new house. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes, please. Have party. Summer yeah. party. It's coming. We'll be there. All right, cool. I'll <laughs> be Love there. you. Love you. Bye. Bye.